0: Welcome to the Future of Australia podcast, where your host, Derek Stewart, interviews the entrepreneurs and founders running the 100 fastest growing new businesses in Australia.
1: On Episode 72, I speak with Ryan Barnes, Managing Partner of Twyo Capital and Advisory, it grew 251% last financial year to do over $3 million in annual revenue and become one of the fastest-growing new businesses in Australia. We discuss how he found himself going from a teenager who loved music to working as a junior tax accountant in a suburban practice and eventually a Fortune 500. Trusting his intuition to leave that role for a startup, joining the Mexican restaurant Zambrero as their first finance hire, and being so immersed in entrepreneurship that he started his own firm three months before COVID, the moment he thought he would lose it all and working without pay to nearly tripling in revenue in 12 months. If you are looking for virtual CFO, corporate and capital raise advisory services who empower visionary business owners and entrepreneurs dedicated to building a better world and brighter future, check out twiocapital.com, that's T-W-I-Y-O. C-A-P-I-T-A-L dot com. So I'm here with Ryan Barnes, the managing partner at Twyo Capital and Advisory. Welcome to the podcast, Ryan. Thanks, Eric. Um, so can you tell us what were you doing before you started uh, Twyo Capital and Advisory? What did you study? What were the early jobs that you did?
0: Uh, well, so I'm a chartered accountant and I started my my career in in... A graduate role in a, a large mid-tier accounting firm called Grant Thornton. So I took the traditional path of, of doing a graduate role. I went through um, an audit pathway and, and spent three or four years there getting a really good um, foundation in in large corporate accounting. Um, I, I then moved into a business uh at Thomson Reuters, if you guys are familiar with it. So that's a large multinational business. It's a dual-listed company. And I went and worked there in a, in a corporate advisory role uh, as an investment analyst. So I, I went from large accounting to a multinational, and then I eventually moved into startups. And that was probably in my mid-20s. Uh, and then from there, I, I really, really didn't look back. Um, I moved from having that background in in those larger businesses and then just stayed with with startups from, from probably the last seven or eight years. And I was fortunate enough to go on two fairly prolific journeys, um, one with the Sam Prince Group, which is the prominent business is Zambrero. So I was I was a CFO of that business from an early stage uh, and also worked at an NDIS healthcare business called Canela. Um, so I was able to go on two reasonable startup journeys and that sort of gave me the uh the sort of interest in then pursuing my own business from there
1: and and so i don't find many teenagers that passionate would be accountants but was there someone that influenced you but towards accounting did did, or were you genuinely you know passionate about accounting as a teenager and wanting to do that
0: so so absolutely not i mean my 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 journey is 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 random at at best i mean i I remember i wanted to study music and do audio engineering coming out of high school and i remember. being being less academic in the later part of my years at school but but actually probably quite academic at the start and at the end I I looked at um you know some different courses that I could do and what would be a good avenue and and I remember my, my father sort of convinced me that maybe accounting would be a good um career career idea and I didn't know anything of it I didn't study economics or, or business studies in in year 11 and 12 like most people did uh and I, and I sort of went on a whim and I was fortunate enough also to uh, land a role in a suburban tax practice. So when I went into university and I started business and I started accounting, I, I didn't have a background that a lot of people did in it and I, I sort of had to start from a really slow spot. Um, but, I, but I picked up a job doing tax accounting when I was you know, 19 and that was good because a lot of people at university don't really have any real experience. They just study, right? And I, And By the end of university, I'd done a couple of years of, of, of work experience so to say, and I think that actually helped me land a great job at you know, a really, really great firm. So I went from sort of not not much interest in accounting, to be honest, uh, to sort of pushing myself into a place where this sort of um, was a good career opportunity. And then thankfully, I, I I really am happy that I did that because my interest in accounting has sort of started in one place, but it's, it's an interesting business that has evolved post that because I think accounting is a great avenue into understanding business and then Entrepreneurship and things like that. So that's kind of how it happened.
1: And, and was your dad in the professional services, or was he a business owner? And he said, "Look, accounting's the language of business. It's a safe fallback on top of a creative sort of passion." Or, or what was his sort of logic for pushing you towards accounting?
0: I think. Um, well, he was not one. That's that's, and it's funny. There are. I've, I've met so many people in accounting where their, you know, father or, or mother is an accountant. And it, it becomes, you know, very generational i think engineering is similar too sometimes um but look i know he, he wasn't an accountant and i think he has had a, a good experience where yeah you know, he he's would see his accountant running a good business in his own right and and knew that that was a, a good pathway you know probably one that didn't require you know him to be on the tools or you know, all the different things that you know he was a he, physical job and was a actually a first grade rugby league player so i think he was looking at a different avenue for me and um I think he has had a really good, um, um, you know, yeah, image of, of his accountant and how they were successful and and doing great things as well. So he suggested I go and have a chat to them. That's kind of how it started.
1: And, and was there any initial pushback where you thought, "No, I'm going to be a musician. Tax is boring. I don't want to do this," or 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 did you feel, "Oh, it makes sense to have an income while I'm studying"? And and, and what was your sort of first impression once you, you had that sort of uh, you know university job? Um, did you enjoy it, and you found it interesting, or did you just kind of think, "Well, I better figure it out," and you know, I don't have any better ideas, so this is what I'll start with?
0: Yeah, I don't. I guess I didn't look back, and I don't know if that was like a conscious thing. But I, you know, once I started these things, I think I, I think I'd, I think I'd committed to it, and then I just, I just did it, right? I think I found, I think I, I found university. Um, I found the first year easy. I would probably say. You know, I felt like i caught up pretty quickly. Um, you know, I, I was able to understand the concepts pretty quickly. And, and in the in the job that I was doing, uh, I, I think that because I, I, things came naturally to me and I was reasonably quick, you know, they were very complementary of the work that I was doing. At the time, it was yeah, incredibly basic, you know, borderline data entry activities. But but it, it laid it up to something that I decided to understand. So I got a lot of, lot of motivation from... That satisfaction of, of just doing those things and being good at them. And I think that that's noble. I think, you know, when you are getting early traction and you, you're good at things and it, and it feels right, then, you know, I didn't really look back. I guess at the time I didn't understand the depth and aptitude of accounting and how that evolves into business later on because at that stage there it was, you know, personal tax returns and, and small company um, p and and balance sheets and all this sort of stuff. So I didn't really get an understanding there, but it was it was a good enough start that I didn't really, really recontemplate things.
1: And so you've gone from a small suburban firm and then you've gone to Grant Thornton, a very big um, professional services firm. Was there a bit of a, a culture shock or, or was it a nice journey because you kind of understood a lot of the basics and it was just the bigger scale? Or was it a bit of a, a culture shock going into a much bigger um, firm with a broader scope than a suburban tax practice?
0: I mean, it was com- completely different. I mean, it was uh, the the suburban firm was run out of a house, um, yeah, you know, on a corner block, uh, and there was maybe four or five people that worked there, and and it was great. But they, but when I went to Grant Thornton, it was it was a completely different world. I did have a pretty good um, comparative feeling when I when I walked in there in the graduate class that I was I did go to a you know, a, a private school where it kind of felt like school a little bit now that's a strange analogy, but, you know, there was a graduate intake, there was, like, a class, there was it was very structured, you know, there was places to be and times to do it, and there was, you know, not a uniform per se, but, you know, when you're wearing a blazer at private school and you're getting suited up as a, you know, 20-year-old, and it, it kind of felt quite structured, um, where the other firm was 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 clearly not. So I, I felt comfortable in that structured environment from, from school, but, look, as far as, like, then the differences in the dynamic from you know, the way things were done to the systems to the size of the clients were you know, completely incomparable. But um, you know, it was it was it was great that I had the edge. I felt like for me, I was very lucky that uh, you know, in that graduate intake, there was uh, a lot of. I thought there was two edges I had. One was a lot of people did a four-year degree, a double major. Which meant they were they were a little older and 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 they not and they didn't have any work experience whatsoever. So I came in with a three year degree. It kind of uh, fast tracked a little bit of things for me, and I had this experience where people were like, "Oh, you know, what's this?" and, and "How do you log into that?" And I just would just know, you know, a, a large percentage of things that related to business services. So I felt like I was ahead on 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 two or three fronts when we came into there, which um, put me in good stead.
1: And what about the transition from there to uh, Thomson Reuters, another very large business, but a quite yeah. different business? Was that an adjustment or a change, or, or again a bit of a natural evolution from professional services to being more in, in sort of media and finance?
0: Look, I, I, yeah, it was a massive change. Again, I, I think that um, there's a few there's a few inflection points in in sort of large tier accounting where I, I think it makes sense to make a move to commercial if that's what you want to do, and you know, once um, you get to that. Senior level, or you finish your chartered accountancy, which I did. That's that's probably a good point. I think the second point's around the manager level. Um, but look, I, once I worked out that the, the the firm life wasn't for me, you know, I did I, I did move over to corporate. I knew I wanted to get a good um, sort of name brand on my CV. I wanted it to be a, a large business. Um, look, I, I probably spent two years there, uh, and it was it was very different. I actually went from feeling um, that you know, in the chart of the fantasy world, they've got some, some, some really high standards, and the recruitment process is, is, is very detailed, um, and uh, I think everyone's a high performer there. But I think as you go and work further into different firms, you understand that there are all sorts of different people at different levels, uh, and and it, it does become a slightly different beast in its own right. Yeah, know, there's some really large teams in there. Um, some really slow ways of doing things, some really good ways of doing things, like legacy systems that can't be changed, that would take a year to sort of unwind them, and you you realize that it's a it's a good place to get exposure to, you know, some really material things that are going on. There were some acquisitions that we did, and we integrated those, but there was also um, you know some limitations on the impact that you could have once you got there as well, which which I sort of felt that. After a couple of years in,
1: yeah, so, so you've gone from a small uh, suburban firm to a, a, a top sort of mid tier professional service firm to again a sort of Fortune 100, um, and then to uh Zembrero, is that right? When they're yeah. in their sort of startup phase, and again, <coughs> what, what was that transition like going sort of bigger and bigger and bigger and then going all the way to sort of a, a startup sort of dynamic?
0: Look, that was that was the the the, the largest sort of shell shock, I would probably say, is that you know, I yeah, i remember my boss at the time told me i was i was not making the, the right move and that i should stay there and do a few more years and there was there were, there were some offices that would open up for me and i think i was still you know the high achiever there as well but you know i i moved over to there on a on a on a on a whim on a feeling on, on intuition um uh and in in many ways it, it could have gone badly but it obviously went really really well it was completely different i think that You know, the biggest thing for me was that I went in there as, you know, the first and only person that worked in in finance, the first time that they would hired an internal person, otherwise completely done by external bookkeepers. And, you know, when you work in a large accounting firm or you work in a large business, there are things you just don't get exposure to. Like, you just get in there and you you have to actually pay bills and go into bank accounts. And at your very best, you do that in your personal life, Yeah, infrequently. And you, you have to work out, like, you know, oh, like in other big companies, you don't do the payroll. Like over at, at Thompson, the payroll was a, a separate department. And then eventually got moved to, to Singapore. So we didn't do anything with payroll. So I had to learn everything from uh, how do you actually pay super and what system should we use for this? And I didn't know. So, it, and a lot of people get more experienced that. But once you go through a, a different pathway, then you eventually end up in a startup and you realize that you have to basically learn how to do every single task in finance, whereas in those large businesses you can have specialities or or people that are focused on a certain part of the balance sheet, which which is a skill set in its own right, but you have to become the ultimate generalist and know how to do everything. Um, And obviously there's a lot of other things that I learned, but I felt like that was the sort of first lesson and the first big difference between um, between all the different businesses I worked at was, was coming in at the ground level and going, I've got to be the one to do everything, so I have to quickly learn how to do everything.
1: And you mentioned you sort of relied a bit on your intuition. Did you see something? Were you, again, just kind of looking for a startup and they were a startup, or, or did you see something unique? Because a lot of startups don't you know, don't make it, they don't do well, so it is a bit of a risk, like your, your boss was telling you, to, to sort of roll the dice on a much smaller um, business. Was there something you saw in them that you thought, no, this is unique, or... You know, in hindsight, it's easy to say it was a big success and you spotted it, but but what were you seeing when they were very small um, and that made you want to work with them?
0: Look, I think, um,
1: well, I realise now that, you know, every
0: time I've thought about new roles, I've, I've thought about doing my own due diligence on wanting to see where the business is at. I, I obviously didn't do anything and I was young, you know, just to kind of listen and, and go to the interviews and see where they're at. So probably probably two key things. So you know I actually met my my now business partner, Stuart Cook, there at the time and he was a an energetic young CEO with bouncing off the walls with enthusiasm. So that was that was uh really exciting. And I also met the owner of the business, Dr. Sam Prince. And I think it was my meeting with him, which I can remember in a, in a CBD, I think it was a cafe or, or, or chocolate Shop, but we met there, and and he told me that his ambition about creating Zambrero and 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 its humanitarian efforts and his his long term ambitions around doing other things in in health and society. Where that hook that hooked me in, like I I probably would say I'm 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 very socially conscious, but I'm not to the extent that it would completely drive my decision making. It's, it's definitely a part of, and it's it's very important to me, but it's not. You know, you know, I'm not gonna, yeah, you know, I'm not gonna get on the Greenpeace, but you know, sort of thing. So, but I, I really, for the first time, found that in my career, because when you go from, you know, accounting to to large corporates to good firms, is that there really isn't much of a discussion on that level, or there at least wasn't ten or fifteen years ago. There probably is a much bigger emphasis on that now. You know, admittingly, but probably the first time I really got exposure to. To social business, to people that deeply cared about it, and um, I that was the basis of my decision making at that stage.
1: And what about from their perspective? In, in one way, I imagine they're very excited to have an ex Grand Thought and ex Thomson Reuters, you know, finance manager. But did they have any? hesitancy around again you're working this giant company where a lot of things like I said are done for you like the payroll and the you know supplier payments and all this sort of stuff and did they worry that you might struggle or again have too much culture shock coming into a startup or were they just excited to have you and they got along and they they weren't worried about someone coming from a the very big end of town to a, a startup
0: look i i I'm not entirely sure, but it went really, really quickly. I remember it came through a Facebook messenger message of saying, Hey, do you want to meet someone about a role? And I remember sort of meeting them almost, I think I met Stuart and Sam consecutive days and then had the offer, and the process was wrapped up in 72 hours. So I think it was just a really good fit. You know, I'm not sure if they, um, maybe they didn't contemplate it. I I think that they also were. Young, you know, and uh, aspiring business owners who, who wouldn't have necessarily overthought the decision around, you know, hey, this guy's never probably done this exact thing before, um, but probably were looking at my ability to do, you know, some some more longer term technical things. So, um, I guess they were probably satisfied that I would be able to learn and dynamically go in, into that environment and, and work things out. Um, but the other thing is that it could have been intuition on their side also.
1: Yeah, and so you've gone in these um, big corporates in a startup that became a very successful sort of well-known scale-up and like you said, a very early, you know, purpose-driven business. So what made you want to sort of start out on your own and um, launch uh, Twio Capital and Advisory? Um, Was there a specific moment or event that sort of triggered the decision?
0: Uh, look there was a few key moments like i feel like uh, once i moved into that particular role just my interest in in, in business and entrepreneurship started to really broaden and you know, when we were at the Sam prince group that business evolved into other hospitality businesses some other health tech businesses you know yeah. some other we built our own design business It just kept growing looked after their charity so you know at one stage our exposure to lots of different businesses in, in one place and and there was another startup which was called hit 100 which I eventually ended up working for full-time um, so yes there was so much um, emphasis on entrepreneurship and new business going around that I would I would do that and I would start to often do some some things in the evening a little bit of moonlighting on other projects as well so you know I started to do it but I did it in the in this sort of sense of um, like my role being the CFO is that I always thought that I was the right hand to to any good entrepreneur or CEO, and I've probably played that role, you know, yeah, you know, ten or fifteen times professionally before doing it as a business. You know, I, I didn't think of it as a business in its own right, but um, but you know, I mentioned uh, Stuart Cook, who is my business partner now. You know, he and I worked at Zambrero, and you know, for, for a few years we, we he he went overseas and did some did some other stuff, and he came back and. Started getting me involved into some other projects. And, you know, he sort of, we started to get to this point where it's like, well, you know, if you, you're business partnering with people and as their CFO in a full time capacity, or you've done it many times in a consulting environment or as part of the role, then p- perhaps there's a business in that. Like, like moving into the advisory space is, is an interesting path. And it kind of just came together, um, you know, just you know, serendipitously. It just it just happened. But then at the same time, now that I look back, like everything in my career had sort of put me to that point where, you know, you know, being a part of a full-time team as a full-time CFO um, is an incredible pathway and there's ways to that can it can be great for you. But you know, there was it was it was also obvious that the way that we could continue to maximize the value that we were adding to other people was to also then know create a business out of it and try to do it in a way to influence and help as many entrepreneurs as possible
1: yeah and so there was very much an evolution towards that like you said you became in a more entrepreneurial environment the next step was to sort of become an entrepreneur yourself um what was the actual first 12 months like though like in theory on paper it all looks good and logical but once you're actually again trying to win clients trying to build it into a business trying to like you said not sell yourself on a full-time basis but Create a structure around it. What was that? The the good and bad of those first twelve months.
0: Well, there's a few kind of crazy parts to this where we actually started the business um, three months before the first COVID nineteen lockdown, um, and and that kind of actually you know almost 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 ruined us, especially in the first few months. But if I take a look at sort of the six months before we started, there's there's an interesting sort of development where i was i was working um as almost as a sole trader essentially and i had i had three key clients who i was um acting as a cfo for and you know i was doing it from home and it was a, it was a, it was a good living and, and everything was was actually pretty tidy and i i realized that there was a sort of a ceiling on that and i, I really if i was going to be a part-time cFO i could really only have' five days i could have five clients if, if they for some reason would be happy to just have one day a week in this sort of siloed way which is not true at all uh, but i would reached this this ceiling of having almost like three part-time jobs and i acknowledge that also that wasn't a business it was really just three part-time roles like you often find that if you're a sole trader and you have two or three clients you're at your maximum and whilst it's a business on paper in the eyes of you know the ato and you're, you're lodging it a, a, you have an abn and things like that i mean it's a business is still creating something that's that's larger than you um so once we once I sort of got to that point and we started to go well, how do we actually make, you know, more than just three clients? You know, should I decided to um, put our businesses together and our consulting businesses together and, and start this business? And that was um, uh, it was in the first of January, and then and then COVID hit in February of that year, and and literally. The first 12 months was was really, really hard. We, we lost a key client. Eventually, we had people hard trying, uh, had a hard time paying all of their invoices. We went to half fee and no fee on most of our arrangements, and then we just didn't pay ourselves for the first four or five months. Um, thankfully, we made the right decisions by instead of, like, cutting people, we just worked for free. Um And sometimes that was paid back in full, sometimes it wasn't. Um, But the first 12 months was was remarkably challenging. But then I think what happened is that once we got through that first six or seven months of COVID, and then people started to come back online and they were integrating into Zoom, we actually it actually flipped on its head and we became a massive benefactor of the change in the working environment because everyone went to this virtual remote working style and our main business was virtual CFO, like virtual CFO assignments. And people became more um, accepting of of not being in their office and we became more efficient as a result. And we were able to, to hire more people and we were able to utilise remote teams and we were able to do all this sort of stuff. And we would, we would meet clients on Zoom and, and, and you could actually... Um, find someone, make a genuine connection, and, and 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 become their advisor through connections like this. And then, you know, all of a sudden, you know, the, the business was was in growth mode, know, yeah, like during COVID. But those first first twelve months were, were certainly shaky. And then I think we were again we were um, we were fortunate that our business model um, aligned with the new working style.
1: And so you mentioned a challenge a lot of people face where you start off and you're selling your own time and it sort of is, becomes a bit like a, a few part-time jobs. And mm-hmm. it's very hard sometimes to make the transition to instead of selling yourself and here's my background and I've worked at all these companies and I'll be a fractional CFO. You're saying, well, I'm running this business and we will essentially assign you one of our fractional CFOs. Um, obviously, then you're selling their benefits. But But was there any struggles where like the client said no we want you we don't want one of your team members we want you as our fractional And making that adjustment from um being a you know a sort of professional for hire to being a real business owner with a team where you're selling the team not yourself
0: well i think i was really concerned and worried about this particular issue and as a result we actually modified the way we deliver in a way to suit it and i mean this this it, what it essentially means is that to, to date, I, I've really been still involved with every single client. Um, the way that we do it is is different. So we take a team-based approach. We use our, our business uh, to be uh, like a three-person assignment to each and every client, which often still includes me. So you'll have um, like this concept that other firms do it where they have eight CFOs or virtual CFOs, and this is one-to-one relationship between uh, the clients and a, a virtual CFO where we take this team-based approach. And when, when when Twio is a virtual CFO, they get a pack. They get someone at a CFO level. They get people with financial management experience. They get senior accountants. We've got a financial modelling team. They tap into a pool of resources, not one person. So I've been able to still have involvement with all of my clients, but bring this team-based approach. Now that's how I think we do it differently, and that way it's not just a fraction of one person. It's it's a fraction of a bunch of people, and equally so because there's different tasks that you know that clients need and SMEs need. It's the right person doing the right thing. I, I think that when there's a fractional CFO. Um, coming in sometimes their hourly rate is used for tasks that that are probably beneath their, their pay grade and therefore inefficient for the client so that's been our solution but you know look i was i was i was unsure how to deal with that at first but at the same time even with the current model there is this time where you know i am having to give the reins over more but playing a different role
1: yeah, so it really becomes more a fractional finance department versus a fractional CFO because they're tapping in all, all sort of levels and skill Um and, and so you mentioned starting in sort of January 2020, the best and worst time to sort of start a business and totally. struggling, but then um, really hitting your strides, like you said, as, as the nature of work evolved and growing 251% last financial year, um, doing nearly 3 million in annual revenue, became one of the fastest growing new businesses in Australia. So there's the challenges of... Covid and like you said, not paying yourself and struggling, and but then there's the challenges of nearly tripling in, in twelve months too. So, so what were some of the good and bad of that rapid growth? And like you mentioned, your model evolving, but what were some of those other um, highlights and lowlights of managing that that sort of rapid success?
0: Look, the the, the 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 interesting part about it is that you know when I look back, like it's it's almost a blur, uh, and, I, and I think because I've got two young kids as well, which hasn't made it uh, as memorable to. To sort of go back over everything but look we, we did grow significantly and we did you know we went from Stuart and I and 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 one and one support team member to probably about 10 reasonably quickly I mean some of the highlights for me is that I was able to go back to my network to people I'd worked with before and convince them to come over and so a highlight for me was like building the team with the people that I'd worked with before people that I could trust and then just plug them in who were already a cultural alignment that I knew and known for five sometimes 10 years so I was able to sort of assemble the Avengers a little bit and that was that was good uh in some way I remember there was there was someone I spoke to where I said hey come over and they were like oh it's a bit risky you know you just started this thing and I came back to them six months later, and and they were like, "Okay, you've really sort of got something going." So that, that that's 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 some of the, the really good highs has been bringing in a team of people that I already knew. Look, some of the lows have been sort of you know the first time a client leaves, for example, because we went through this period of 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 just yeah, you know, in some ways, you know, frictionless acquisition. Where people were, were, were from our network were, were catching on, you know, where people were coming over to us, clients referring us, and I think some of the lows were at the first time you realise that your you, 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 your services aren't a perfect fit for everybody, you know, and, and people leave or, or or they've grown too high, and, and I think you start to reconcile with that, and you realise that hey, we've got to really think about how we're doing things, opposed to you know just this um, slight honeymoon period that comes through the growth as well, so you know, there's, there's, there's definitely been highs and lows overall. Um, thankfully for us so far, more highs. But I think, you know, that, that bringing the team around this service has been probably the, the, the greatest one.
1: And so was part of that friction sort of outgrowing some of your clients where, like you said, the, the scope and scale of your service became a wrong fit or was it outgrowing some of the early team members who, again, as the model evolved, they didn't sort of grow with that?
0: it was more it's more that the actually the the, the clients are growing going too fast so like you know the 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 concept of of uh, and we have two parts of our business but the 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 main part is around this concept of virtual CFO. But what we what we do know is that it's it's really there for a finite period of time. Uh, it, it could be a year, it could be three years. I mean, you know, if you are a business that's growing aggressively, you will eventually grow out of a virtual CFO and need a full-time CFO. So some of the people that have left have been, you know, on that side in respect of almost graduating from the program and saying, hey, you know, we've we're at a point where we've got more questions than you've got available time. And, you know, we need people to be at the desk so that we can ask them a question every 30 seconds and the entrepreneurs are moving faster and they're starting to travel overseas and they're going and there's a lot more physical requirements and there's team meetings and things like that. So, you know, I think the the the, the largest driving force in that is actually the client's growth and the complexity in the change of their business, which means that, you know, eventually that the, that the fit isn't right anymore.
1: Yeah. And so you're in, like you said, that virtual CFO and capital sort of advisory space. What do you see a lot of entrepreneurs getting wrong about raising capital? Is it leaving it too late, thinking that it's easier than it will be? Is it thinking that, you know, their model or industry would struggle to raise capital? Is it they're, you know, they're financially disorganized? What are all the above? What are some of the, the sort of common uh, pitfalls um, when people come to you and um, you know you have conversations about raising capital to fuel growth
0: look I, I think in I think it's changed a lot especially in the last 12 months but look, look I think the the largest one is, is 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 pre-revenue businesses like I still think that that's uh, a really tough position to be to be raising from where yeah people really want to get some level of traction as they're going through things or some sort of revenue growth. Uh, I think you nailed it with um, the amount of time it takes and uh, and just thinking that, it, that it's easy and that, you know, every, everything will go according to plan. Like people need to understand that if you're going to go and do a, 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 a roadshow, a couple of roadshow, that you have to really allocate three to six months of your time and, and, that, and also understand that you won't really be as active in your own business. It's really hard to do both. Um, but, look, I think it's the, the time and they're just, you know, people just um, have these expectations that, it, that it's easy and that it will just come, you know. I think the best ones that that do it are the ones that are building their network of investors when they're not raising because, basically, if you're a business that requires capital, you, you, you're always raising in some way or another. Like, you're always making a connection for whether it's for the next raise and you're talking about it. And you want to, you know, soften people up towards when you actually go live and test their early interest. So, I think that the people that come and go, oh, let's start a roadshow. Okay, who have you been speaking to? Or oh, nobody. Let's start now. I think they'll find that, you know, it, it might not happen for them, or it might take longer. And then, as a result of spending time on that, they've actually let the business slow down at the same time. So it's it's a tough one. You've really got to, you've really got to try to time the capital raise at a point when the business is accelerating as well. Which means you have to have seeded all those conversations six or twelve months in advance.
1: Yeah, it's sort of like the old advice about planting the tree before you need the shade, because if you haven't already sort of put things in, in place, it's uh you know, it's almost too late. And I, I think as well, I guess like people see Shark Tank or they, you know, see a media piece about someone who's raised millions of dollars, but they don't see what happened the three to five years before that. Like you said, the networking, the meeting that led to them successfully being able you just see the the finish line. Um, which, like you said, probably creates a false sense of time. Um, and, and so what about sort of more broad trends, you know, working with entrepreneurs every day in these entrepreneurial conversations? Um, what do you see Australian entrepreneurs doing really well? And then compared to, to global markets, which I'm sure you, you also keep an eye on, um, whereas Australia maybe sort of sometimes a bit behind um, some of the other key markets.
0: Uh, look, look. I'd probably say that the the international markets and entrepreneurs are, are slightly more polished with their approach to capital raise. They also understand that um, when they want to do a capital raise, they need to need to have a business that has you know all of the foundations in place. So I, I think that there is this sort of um, yeah sort of rose colored glasses look at, at how you know businesses can be valued and how businesses can be run and how ideas are, are worth. You know, in the eyes of investors. So I think the international markets sometimes act as a as a bit of a beacon where you know overseas the, the valuations are probably more generous or have been, especially in the past. So for, for Australian entrepreneurs, they look at that and expect that that's going to happen in Australia. And they often think that you know that they ought to go overseas. That's their their best market. But I, I think also equally, you know, they need to reconcile with the fact that if they have a product here, there's a lot of time that needs to go into going overseas. And it's just also not as easy just to kind of, you know, relocate everything and, and go over there that they, they have to just understand the Australian market and who all the Australian players are and who the investors are here. And, you know, in the first instance, that's probably the right place to focus uh, and find out who wants to take businesses internationally as well. But I guess, you know, you asked about, you know, what entrepreneurs are, 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 are doing are doing good. You know, I think... Um, I like a few things in that in that space like I like I think if you have any entrepreneurs that um, have other business interests at the same time it, it doesn't quite have as as much success as people that are ultimately obsessed around one business. I think when you see people with you know a few different businesses going on and they start a new thing, you know I, I get a little bit nervous about ensuring that their full attention is there and I, and I personally just love the idea of, of co-founders like I really feel that, People that have two people entrenched from the start, presumably with uh, a sensible equity split between them, to and a good shareholders agreement too, to actually go and build a business together where they can build off each other's ups and downs. I think more than two is is usually not that great because it it spreads the responsibility sort of too far where there's not quite as many. But I, I think that yeah, you know, when there's two people with a with a, with a with a complete focus on on something, then they're probably going to have a good crack at it.
1: Yeah. And so they are able to complement each other's strengths and weaknesses and, and give that extra sort of attention. Um so what advice would you give someone who's maybe 18 to 21 years old right now? Again, maybe they've finished high school, maybe they've finished university and they're sort of interested in business or interested in different sort of fields but they're not sure exactly what to do. Um, maybe they're interested in, again, entrepreneurship. What, what would you tell someone like that looking back at your own journey and the young people you sort of come across, I'm sure, in, in your business?
0: Look, I, I I think it depends on what type of business they might be interested in because, you know, if I reflect back on on my own journey, you know there's this there's there's one piece of information that comes up in this type of discussion of all the time which is always yeah you know, start earlier or start as soon as possible and I think that as it pertains to a consulting business like ours if I had started it earlier I, I wouldn't have had the necessary experience to do it. So you know for me it wasn't methodical because your career has kind of evolved dynamically right. So if I look back to my own journey I'd probably you know tell myself to to, to take the path that i took you know if there's a certain amount of, of clout that had to be generated before you can you can go out and tell people how to run their businesses so if you're looking at an advisory role or yeah which which or, or professional services role then I think and you want to start this type of business or or, or or those then I think you intentionally want to position yourself around great people and in great firms and in different firms to go and understand how they all work to then go and do it yourself one day. So I think in you know, a services business is different, but I think when it comes to like, you know, whether it's you know product businesses or you know, you know more common startups which are about you know solving a customer need, which are non-professional services, then I think then I think I would say start earlier in those those in those um, situations. I'd probably also say to people that the state of your life is really really important as well. Like if you're going to take risks at a certain part of your life, it, it makes sense to, and it gets harder because being an entrepreneur and having a family uh, are also precious to consider. If you were going to do, again, not a services business then and you were 18 or 20, then you would start as, as early as possible. You would take that risk whilst you potentially could live at home, things are on the cheap, you would actually go and, and, and do it then uh, or, or try to find the right um, place to learn how to do it because um, what you'll often find is that people can take a lot of risks in their in their 20s and then there, sometimes there's a period in the middle where it gets really hard to take risks and then they'll take risks sort of maybe in their 40s. So I'd think about what their life plans were as well and try to align those things. Um, you know, But the, the, the reality is, is that a lot of people don't really plan it out that well, so you know, it's slightly perfect, perfect worldview at the same time.
1: Yeah, and it's, like I said, depends a lot on their own risk tolerance, their goals, their industry. Um, and you mentioned earlier about being a sort of high achiever, being around high achievers. What do you see if someone, you know, maybe they want more the first decade of their career to be a bit more of a corporate path, but they want to do well? So, so I think there's a lot of um, advice on how to start a business, but less advice on how do you be the best? Again, say you're an employee. How do you be a high achieving employee? Um, in a you know like an ambitious sort of corporate environment Um, having sort of been there and done that what advice would you say to someone who's again maybe in a graduate job at a big sort of firm professional services or commercially um, and how they can you know um, excel as a high achiever in an employment model
0: look I think this is going to be terrible advice but I I think you need to stand out and I think you need to um, I I think at times you need to what I say stand out from your peers like that that does sometimes mean working a little bit harder than than others and, and doing a little bit extra here and there. I'm not saying for the sake of of doing extras, but, you know, I certainly found that my career gave more back to me the more I gave to it. And I did make a lot of sacrifices around time investment and and, and things like that, you know. But at the same time, it, it had a return. Like I, I was getting things out of that, you know. So I would probably say I'm not saying that you – Have to necessarily work sixty hours, but you have to be present. You have to be your best, and you have to take it seriously. Like you, you, in those sort of environments, um, people are being um, compared as peers and things like that. So you do want to create a slightly competitiveness around it, and and just try to do do your absolute best. Look, the other thing is to is obviously to build relationships. If you're in a firm, then you're going to want to have mentors. You're going to want to talk to people. There are, there are some people that are less interested in that than others, but I think you need to, you know, you know build relationships at the same time. Um, and by doing that, you stand out too. So I think I think I think standing out is is important.
1: And, and do you see anything different? I imagine you sort of hire grads in your business or in your, your client's business. There's grad sort of intake, and do you see anything that's sort of different? um you know every generation has a commentary on so the generation below it. but do you see pros and cons are people more you know less likely to work for big corporate they're more excited to work in a startup some once upon a time are there other different sort of attitudes you've seen you know with um graduates sort of you know in the current sort of class of twenty twenty two, twenty three 23 versus the sort of when you were a fresh grad yourself
0: um this is slightly anecdotal because we don't necessarily have too many grads, but I, I do, I, I do, I do agree that the social consciousness is 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 by far you know more important, and, and everybody needs to have some type of CSR policy that people can can lean in towards. Uh, I know that there's motivating people, and you know I, I do feel like um and, and maybe it's true to my generation too, but yeah, you know, there's there's less loyalty these days than than. These stories of people staying at companies for 10, 20, 30 years, you know, I just don't think you see that anymore. And I I think it's incumbent on on businesses to to build long-term incentives uh, that attract people in and then try to, you know, warrant that they stay by uh, by having a great culture and and long-term incentives. Now, in the past, you could have had an average culture and no long-term incentives and people would still stay for 30 years because of some type of conditioned um, mindlessness towards staying, and, and for some for some reason, it could be loyalty or it could be benefits. But look, I, I think that um, you know people will move. Like I moved a lot in my career, and I and I'm, I'm 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 grateful for it. It happened at usually the right time. So you know I think if you're going to try to understand that people are going to move, then you've got to create good culture and good long term incentives to make them stay for as long as they want to. And I think that if if people are going to leave your business and this generation of people are going to leave more fluidly, then you want to try to have uh, open channels of communication to find out when people want to do that and then try to participate in the next part of their journey. Because if someone said to me that yeah they were considering leaving or going to leave, then my next point of curiosity after reconciling with the fact that they were leaving would be like, okay, so what are you going to do and, and where do you want to go next? So, and wanting to play at least a part in that as well because, you know, not everyone's going to stay forever.
1: And when you're doing sort of capital raises, do you also often encourage like employee, you know, share ownership programs and things like that in order to create those long-term incentives in, in your sort of client companies?
0: Yeah, almost always. And even without the capital raise, so even in our clients that aren't, you know, currently raising funds then we would almost always at least think about the right people to do it and and the right structure to make it effective but look we're we're huge advocates for that as well like we would always bring it up we would try to get people to have even even uh, short-term incentives like bonuses if a a business doesn't have any bonuses it it might be okay it might be just fine but you do want to have some performance-based culture and then an employee option plan is is a remarkably versatile way to encourage people to perform at their best and stay and behave like owners. So I'd say almost always, Derek.
1: Okay. No, excellent. And um, um, going back to your business, what, what does the next sort of 5 to 10 years look like? Do you have a sort of medium-term direction, vision, expansion, goals um, that you've got in mind?
0: Uh, look, it's 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 evolving. I'd probably say that our ambition is not necessarily to have um, hundreds and hundreds of clients and hundreds and hundreds of team members. It's, it's in fact the opposite. I, I feel like we're about um, half the size we, we we want to be when we're when we're mature. I think that comes down to wanting to have a boutique experience, wanting to have good relationships with the clients. You know, a lot of this is based on. Um, reputation that we've built up and within the team that I want to leverage to the fullest. So diluting that um, isn't part of the plan. I, I think that um, our, our services could broaden and evolve. Our, our involvement in the clients could could evolve. Um, I'm also imagining that, you know, one day our, our virtual CF program could be a closed group, sort of, of, a, of a maximum number that people would come into and if, if one left, then one would be added. You know, it doesn't, it's not exponential. Um, so right now, with our corporate advisory work, we, we do that for select businesses that that fit within our specialisations. But I'd love for that to, to to purely come from our virtual CFO business so that it's a, a really closed-loop group. Um, you know, and, and obviously we've got some ambition around um, starting some other businesses and things like that. But, you know, I think the, the plan is evolving. And it's it largely predicated by, you know, opportunities that come up to us through our client base um yeah and also um what kind of business we want to we want to run and what, what the team want to do and what we find enjoyable as well so you know there's there's the, the fun part of how it is that we get to write it the way we want to do it
1: and when you say broadening services without adding, would you ever look to you know have your own sort of venture capital or private equity fund or again you'd rather be in an advisory capacity or How do you sort of think about those sort of sides of the business?
0: Look, that is, uh, you've actually pointed out the exact sort of one that becomes a question for us. You know, we always talk about will we one day start our own fund? Will we not? I think every six months my answer to that question changes. Uh, I think the current landscape is challenging. So, you know, the, the, the last 10 years of, 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 of raising capital in, in with low interest rate markets and everyone starting funds and having amazing returns. Yeah, you know, that honeymoon period is slightly behind us. So it's less attractive right now. I think the market will change and it will get better. Um, I think that's kind of like the big question for us is that do we do that, you know, in five or ten years time once we've developed all this, you know, all these skills around picking great startups and making them work. You know, and it also synergizes with the fact that we can offer them advisory services. So uh, it's one that I think we'll continue to retest that assumption every year until we get to a focal point of needing to determine to whether we do it or not.
1: Yeah, and um, do you have any final thoughts or words you'd like to leave the audience with?
0: Um, look, I'd, I'd probably say that you know, yeah, overall, yeah, I was I was very lucky to, to to work in the places that I worked and make the connections that I made and and stay in contact with really good people and, and try to keep options open. I think starting a business is um, is something that everyone should try to do once in their life. I think that there are some really great things that people should do. I think that travel is one. I I think that starting a business is a unique adrenaline rush. You know, yeah. In in a a strange way, I think having children is also an interesting thing that that changes your life and your perspective on things. So, you know, I think all these things can have a really interesting impact on your life and how you perceive things. And Um, And I think that people should, you know, certainly consider at the right time, you know, having a
1: go. Yeah, excellent. Thanks so much for your time, Ryan. Really appreciate it.
0: You're welcome, Derek. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Future of Australia podcast. If you liked the episode, please subscribe and leave a review in iTunes. To learn more about the Future of Australia project, check out futureofaustralia.com. To reach out to Derek directly, you can email Derek at futureofaustralia.com. That's D-E-R-E-K at futureofaustralia.com.